up, guys? This is Riketty, and we are back for another episode of We Declare War, The Wiser Edition. Here I have a special guest, Ali McBride, and uh, he is one of my dad's uh, close mentees. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good, and thank you for having me. No problem. I'm still a little under the weather, so please bear with me. Um, so, for the record, what do you do? What's your job title? Well, my job title is a title that most people would assume, well, we're just under the umbrella of corrections, but I'm a senior investigator with the New Jersey Department of Corrections. Um, and in short, I'm internal affairs for the New Jersey Department of Corrections. Huh. So what exactly do well, you... Well, what internal affairs does is pretty much the same function that an internal affairs uh, uh, division does for a municipality. For instance, we investigate officers, we investigate inmates, we investigate interactions between officers and inmates, or corrections officers and inmates. Mm. Um, we investigate the civilians um, on that level. We investigate any type of, of infraction that may go on with an inmate or an officer outside the institution. So anything that's under the umbrella of a law being broken or something of that nature, uh, we deal with, mm. you know. Um, with me, though, I've been in internal affairs for almost 17 years. And for 17 of those years, for 10 of them, I worked with the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force. I was a task force officer uh, with, with the uh, Fugitive Investigations for New York and New Jersey. Mm. So for 10 years, I, I've been running down the streets. So how did you come to work in the, um, I guess, what would you consider, I guess, the correction system? New Jersey Department of Corrections. Mm. What, what happened was uh, when I came home, um, I wanted to go to law school. When you came home from college? From, I came home from Johnson C. Smith University. Mm. Um, what I did you major in? I majored in English. I was an English, <laughs> yeah, English major, right? Okay. English major, and I minored in Spanish. And <laughs> mind you, I met your father uh -huh. before that. As a matter of fact, I met your father when I was a freshman. I was a freshman at Johnson C. Smith University, and I had come home during a break. Mm. I know I'm kind of drifting. I, I came home during a break, and... They had an African American, an African Echoes lecture mm. at the church on Littleton Avenue, mm. right down South Orange Avenue, and I saw these flyers. It was a fly of African Echoes with all these lecturers. Now, mind you, I was always kind of politically aware, loosely affiliated mm. with you know the Nation of Islam, maybe five percent Nation, <laughs> maybe. Um, in any event, um, they had these lectures going on, and I had a, I had a, I was just. I had just become a part of an organization at John C. Smith University called the Association of African Thinkers okay. on campus. Uh -huh. But I came home during the break and I seen this fly. I said, I'm going to go check this out. And I went. And this is when Professor Mackey, those who are part of the quote unquote conscious community know who Professor Mackey is. Professor Mackey was this, this, uh, this sociological thinker. He was in the same vein as, as uh, Professor George Simmons, who was a transcriber for Dr. Yosef Benyakinen. So all these people were in this, this quote-unquote African-centered way of thinking. Right. So I went to see Professor Mackey, and your father did the introduction. Uh-huh. So when I went and I told... How long ago was this? Wow, we're talking... We're talking 88. Huh? Talking 1980. Oof. <laughs> we're talking 1988, and so... I might have been a thought. <laughs> yeah, right? Wow. 
So you ain't even born yet? Thanks, '88. Oh my God. So he said to me, um, I told him my name, my government name, and he said, um, "You ever thought about changing it?" I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he asked you. That's what Mackie asked me. Oh, okay. Your father didn't ask me. That. <laughs> so I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Your mother passed away." I said, "Yeah." He said, "I don't worry about it." <laughs> so me and your father got to talking, mm-hmm. and um, I was like, "Wow, you know, this is very interesting." And so he said they had a study group on Friday nights. Now, this is kind of different because you know, coming up during that time, you know, you either rocked with cats on the corner with the 5% nation or you went down to the mosque when you joined the nation of Islam your father was you know very civil and was like come to the study group yeah which was here yeah and I said right. here here as in we're recording at the house absolutely <laughs> and so I, I came up here one day and, and I never forget this your father he said to me um he said do you do you believe that Jesus walked on water <laughs> And I, you know, and it was, it kind of threw me off. Like, what does he mean? You know, <laughs> did Jesus walk on water? Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I guess, yeah, you're supposed to believe that. I mean, I was kind of developed in my thinking, you know, yeah. as far as being African centered or being conscious, quote unquote. So I'm like, I guess you're supposed to believe that. He says, okay. He said, what if I told you that I walked on water at Branch Park? What if I told you that? Would you believe me? I said, well, no. He says, well, how do you not believe a man that you see <laughs> right in front of you mm-hmm. and you don't believe uh, and, and you, but you believe a man that you've never seen mm-hmm. and you, it's questionable about his existence. Mm-hmm. And that was my journey from that point. That was my journey into seeing things from a different perspective, seeing things through a different lens. Mm-hmm. And it just blew my mind. Your father blew my mind with that one time. And I'm like, wow. You know, and from that point on, I was sold. So, you know, I was going to different lectures and different things. Every time I would come home during a break, I would I would long to come home to come home, you know, for these breaks. And there was so much going on in New York at the time and in the tri-state area. You know, you had the Tawana Brawley issue mm. going on. You mm. had the Central Park Five. Yep. All of these things were going on at the same time. You would read the City Sun. You read the Amsterdam News and, of course, the Final Call. <laughs> the Daily Challenge was coming, what came out at that time. And it's funny, too, that how important media is because of this new medium called social media, how important those things were and how we kind of just like let them go. But you had the Carib News, you had all those things and I was introduced to them via your father mm-hmm. and people within that community. Mm-hmm. And so going back and forth, you know, I would come home, I'd be longing for the lectures. We got our little VCR tape, seeing the lectures with Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, who was a professor at Rutgers University who wrote uh, They Came Before Columbus mm-hmm. or, yeah, uh, right, or Amos Wilson mm-hmm. who wrote a bunch of books. Matter of fact, Amos Wilson's book, The Falsification of African Consciousness, and another book was actually done and transcribed through African Echoes. Mm. Like, we don't know that. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, or, or Black Power, well, not Black Power, but it's Falsification of African Consciousness, and it's another book that was literally transcribed uh, from African Echoes lectures. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of lectures mm. that you find on the internet today that your father did the introduction on. It's literally intellectual property. Right. And, and I, I, I need to go check that out. Real yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I actually did my master's capstone on African Echoes. And, and I did a SWOT analysis. 
And the SWOT analysis that I did, part of the SWOT analysis was the intellectual property. And I said, there, there's a plethora of, of lectures that are floating around uh, online that were done through African Echoes mm-hmm. that literally were the, the, the definitive lectures of some of these people huh. um, that we don't that we don't really keep uh, um, keep our fingers on. Mm. So I, I say that to say, you know, um, like for instance, Edward, Dr. Edward Bynum, you know, out of Boston, he was a medical doctor. He was a neurologist, if I'm not mistaken. I think a neurologist. Um, you know, he did a lecture, and it might be one of the only lectures. Dr. Uh, Baba Katie Awadu, who does the the um, LIB radio out in California, I know he was selling that at one time, but that lecture was done with African Echo. Now, I love Baba, you know what I mean? And I, I think that it's cool that he's doing that because we didn't really take uh, 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 ownership of that. But there, again, there are a plethora of lectures. I know I'm going off cap, but I got to just say this. <laughs> it's important uh-huh. that, that people know Well, that. I mean, this is part of your background, you know what I mean? Right. How do you... There's no way. How do you do like a, a major in English and then a minor in Spanish and then you're working right. in corrections, right? Well, I can't. Well, and then I, maintain your African sense of self. Well, it's too. tough. It's tough because okay, <clears throat> speeding up. Once I came out of school, I came home and then I had. Well, before I came home, I took the test because it was like. Test you know, for a, a test for correction, state uh-huh. police, yeah, yeah. the North Police, uh-huh. the fire department. I took a test for all of those because it was like, you're not promised a job. So I'm like, you know, I, I would fly, my mother would fly me home and I would take those tests. What was your ideal job? My ideal job was I wanted to go to law school. Okay. Okay. I couldn't afford to go to law school. So I winded up getting a job. And I even asked your father, I consulted with your father. I consulted with your father with a lot of things. I, mean, I consulted with your father. Of whether I should pledge a fraternity because I wasn't going to do it. And what winded up happening, uh, I was at the library one day and Dr. John Henry Clark was there, the yeah. library. And this was during the James Brown, when James Brown was alive. Now they have an organization in his name and in his honor at the Nook Library. Mm-hmm. And your father was down there. I think your father might have loosely had something to do with Dr. John Henry Clark coming to the Nook Public Library. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned pledging Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And um, he went off. He went off. You don't need to class. No Greek letter fraternity. And I was like, wow. And Ron Rice, who was a councilman in this right here in his ward, where we're doing this interview right now, he said to me last year, year before last, oh, I was there when it happened. I never knew he was there. But he was there. He was like, You yeah. made that much of a, a rocket. Yeah, it was a big thing. But then your pops pulled me to the side later. And he was like, listen, you know, you should pledge that fraternity because you can influence other people to see things a little differently, see things through an African lens. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, in him doing that, indirectly uh, uh, afforded us the opportunity to have Dr. John Re Clark come and speak at Johnson C. Smith University. Mm-hmm. So between that and between uh, me indirectly influencing my other line brothers to want to pledge in that as opposed to Kappa and these other mm-hmm. organizations, um, it worked out. It, it worked out great. And even to this day, they still, to this day, with my fraternity, if I'm not mistaken, they still give each line member an African name. Right. But your father is literally responsible for that. <laughs> Believe it or not, he's responsible for that. So in any event, I came home, took the test, corrections called me back, and I started working corrections. You and weren't I- hesitant to work corrections? Because you, you joined the force almost, what, 20 years ago? 
22, 22 years ago, 22 years and three months, I, I, I went to corrections. You know what it was? <laughs> it was a matter of being able to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. Um, you know why I didn't really see this as a contract? I mean, I was kind of uneasy at first because mm-hmm. it was like, damn, here it is. I got all this information mm-hmm. being in this organization, African Echoes, but bills still needed to be paid. Right. Um, plus, my consciousness is different from not better or not worse. It's just different. Mm-hmm. So if I go into an industry like law enforcement, I'm looking at that whole that whole thing differently than others. I don't look at that population of people as something other. I look at that population as, hey, I'm doing a job. If I can make some impact on some individuals while I'm here, then I'll do it. As a matter of fact, your father used to come to Northern State Prison. I think it's on what, teach or something like that? Yes, yeah. him and there was another professor. I think the other professor was, he was from, from the continent, if I'm not mistaken. And I think your pops used to come with him. Yeah, I used to come with him and teach. He used to teach. I never seen him there, but they used to come there and they used to teach the MA population. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, they used to come and they used to teach. And that's my thing that, yeah, I, if I work there, if I'm able to make some impact on individuals that, that are there, then so be it. That didn't stop me from doing my job, mm-hmm. but it, it stopped me from looking at things the way, unfortunately, a lot of people of African descent, the way they looked at doing the job. Their whole thing is, Put your foot in that type situation a lot. Why? Unfortunately, that's just how we've been socialized. I think that that's again we've been socialized to believe that doing not doing things as a collective, like looking at that looking at that population of people as something inordinate to who and what we are. Mm. That becomes the issue. Did not not understanding that you know. African people are not just from the continent. African people are part of the population here in the United States. Right. African people are in South America. Mm-hmm. You have a, a population of African people in London. Like, looking at things through a diasporic... Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure if that's a word, but... <laughs> looking at, at, at our people from a diasporic lens, understanding that when you see people in IT. That is you. Right. That is who yeah. you are. And again, all of those things started from that organization that your father uh, uh, was very important, um, very instrumental in being a part of and starting, um, being able to see the world mm-hmm. through that lens. Right. Because um, I remember asking you to, like, I was like, what did he say, like, when you went to join in corrections? Because that's. You know, that's kind of... You know what, he never... You know what, he never ever... The, the only the only time your father looked at anything negative, I mean, as far as, as far as with me, is that I think that he was always concerned about the information, me knowing the information and putting myself in a position where I might have said too much mm. or putting myself in a situation where um, I might have responded. Right. Job. And that was like how your feet would always be like, I'll, I'll, I'll calm down, mm-hmm. calm down, you know? And he would, he his whole thing was, there's a way that you need to go about, um, having that information, you know, and and, and sharing that information. And I think that that was his major concern. I think he understood the, the, 
the requirements of paying bills and that you have to do certain <laughs> things. Yeah, you, you, you got to. And, and believe it or not, you know, my in my foundation being, you know, a part of African Echoes, my approach to things were different. My approach to how we dealt with fugitives was different. You know, just, just me being involved in the shooting incident back in, if I'm not mistaken, either 2013 or 2014, where I was shot at. I was shot at, it was shot at like with, with my team between 15 and 17 times. You know, just being able to deal with that situation and to have some compassion for a man or a boy, because he was in with, you know, Trayvon, he's doing time now for it. Um, being able to literally go back in there three and a half hours later to safely get him to surrender. You know, being able to have, a, have some compassion for your fellow man and particularly those that are a part of the, the an oppressed community. Right. You know, we as African people, how do we see ourselves as human beings? How do we see ourselves as brothers and sisters? And I think that that's one of the biggest issues for a larger part, a larger part of the community, being able to identify with those people who have historically been oppressed in this country, who've been kidnapped from West Africa during the Ma'afa. The Ma'afa is a term used by... Uh, um, What's the lady's name? Uh, Marumbi Ani. Mm -hmm. You know, your father uh, introduced me to Marumbi Ani. She wrote the book Yerugo. And, you know, she talked about the Ma'afa. The Ma'afa is everything that we've experienced when we were kidnapped from West Africa and brought to, to the hells of North America to toil for free, to be terrorized, to be raped, and to come here. You know, understanding that and understanding the trauma that comes from that, understanding the, the, the ramifications of enslavement and how those things still affect us to this day. All of those things are connected. All of those things are holistic. And if you can go back and you can understand how that connects to where you are at now, where you're at currently, then you can get some understanding for what's going on right now. So the population that you deal with mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. is, because you said you do internal... Internal affairs. Or I'm part of Special Investigations Division, but it used to be called the Internal Affairs Unit. Oh, for some reason, I was under the impression you work with kids. Now I do. Right. Now As I do. As a part of... Oh. Well, now I do. Because okay. remember, okay, I started off with corrections, uh -huh. right? I was basically working in Northern State Prison as a corrections officer. Okay. I did that for about maybe five and a half years, maybe six, close to six years, maybe. Five and a half, six years. Then I got the job with Internal Affairs. When mm -hmm. I got the job with Internal Affairs, I did that at East Jersey State Prison, what they call Rawway. I did that for about maybe five and a half years, something like that. And then I got the job with the New York, New Jersey Fugitive Task Force, with the U.S. Marshal Fugitive Task Force. I was a task force officer, and I did that for 10 years, chasing fugitives, chasing fugitives all over the place, <laughs> all over the place for 10 years. I stopped doing that, came back to do investigations. I went to Northern State Prison, but now for like maybe a half a year now so far, I'm at Mountain View Youth Correctional Facility. Mm -hmm. So you have three different youth correctional facilities in um, in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, you have um, Garden State, you have Mountain View Youth Correctional Facility, and it's the Craft Central Reception Receipt. That might not be it, but there are three mm -hmm. youth facilities for people that are young adults. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I do. What's, what's the age range for there? 18 to like late 20s, early 30s, something like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're working with the uh, uh, the, the, a younger population. 
and your job now with them is... Still investigations. What kind of, like, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> my job entails um, pretty much the same thing just <clears throat> with the youth population, you know. Um, maybe they might be, you know, someone might bring drugs in. You know, you have to pretty much investigate and, that. And see, you know, how did that get into the... How did that get in? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a law being broken and right. you have to do your job for the most part. With dealing with these populations, um, ever so often, uh, the term school to prison pipeline um, pops up. Mm-hmm. What What is your take on it? And, and can you explain what that is? Like, how does that affect the population that you deal with now? Or if, if it does at all, if you think that it does at all. Well, let me... Let me- let me kind of flip it on you. Let me ask you a question, and it can it can kind of almost segue into where we can go with this. Mm-hmm. Can you recall historically when the enslavement of African people ended and when the prison system started? Uh, well, it was essentially slavery, and then. Prison. But can you ever say? Can you definitively say? No. Right. <laughs> no, I can't. And 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 that's my thing. Sometimes if we if we look at things historically, uh-huh. and that's the thing that your, your father always taught All about the us facts. too. Mm-hmm. The facts and looking at things from its historical origin, mm-hmm. the lines are blurred. There 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 was a there was an evolution. Maybe there was a modification. It never ended. Enslavement never really ended. It was modified. And in, in, in that modification, we were all we always played the bottom of these things. The, that, that system always benefited on the backs of African people. Yeah, the people were involved. You know, Native Americans weren't really uh, strong enough to endure, but African people were always a part of that system, even to this day. You know, the prison system in some towns, the whole families work at the prison. Hell, that goes on in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Whole communities uh, um, survive based on that prison, a prison being built in their in their community. Look at the guy down, I think it was in Florida, where they're talking about um, uh, relaxing sentences because most of the people in, that are incarcerated in this country are, are incarcerated for non-violent offenses. And here, here's my thing: like uh, my my biggest gripe, especially, is with um, the whole weed, uh, quote unquote, like the marijuana right. um, craze that they have going on. Right. All these people are getting licenses, and half of the people that are in these jails are in there for selling weed and it's just like you're really not gonna like right you're really not gonna relax this sentence right but you're gonna give and and i've even heard and i've seen articles of people applying for their licenses black people applying for their licenses and not getting not being able to get it exactly it's a billion dollar industry and you need 50 grand just to to be looked at to be considered but again it goes back to what i was just saying before that these things are done on the backs of african people this, this is nothing new. It's an individual by the name of Dr. Carl Hart, right? Mm-hmm. He is a um, was a neuroscientist. He's a neuroscientist, and he talks about 
historically how, for instance, they talked about how uh, smoking marijuana made Negroes crazy. <laughs> Why is it we just only made us crazy, mm-hmm. right? But mind you, this goes back to the mm-hmm. early, the early uh, 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 20th century. Right. Talk about like the early 1920s, the early 19th, the early 20th century. That they've been doing this. That they've been 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 putting this this narrative on us, and that's what I'm saying. We've always been the marketing tool. Now they've kind of relaxed. Like currently, they talk about immigration now, right? They don't really talk about black because it's so, it's so taboo. Because we ain't having it no more. But don't get me wrong. They found slick and savvy ways to still do that. But back to what you were saying initially, this prison, the school, uh, prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. I got a friend named Tone. I never forget. He said his son his son went to school one day, and his son came home with a blue sheet. Right? They were mm-hmm. giving out blue sheets in school. Like that was some type of disciplinary giving blue sheets. Blue sheets are the same things they give out in prison. Mm-hmm. So when they write you a charge, you get a blue sheet. Mm-hmm. So you have these things that are taken uh, from the prison culture mm-hmm. that are in the school culture, and so if if you're not if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. Jesus. And for those of you who, who aren't um, sp- very clear on the school-to-prison pipeline, it uh, it starts in the classroom, and it's uh, when combined with zero-tolerance policies, a teacher's decision to refer students for punishment can mean that they're pushed out of the classroom and much more likely to be introduced into the... Well, ultimately, mm-hmm. introduced into the criminal justice system. Absolutely. That's scary. Because I've worked in a school, and I've worked in a charter school, and mm. I know I know that the flack um, that charter schools get because of... Um, They're terrible, the, Yeah. They're the terrible. Policy. And, and that's the thing. What are you preparing our children for, and why is it that our children receive such harsh discipline as compared to other school systems? They have a lot of people who don't understand the culture. They don't understand why they Absolutely. Kids the way that they act, why they may act Teach America, out. something like that. What is yeah. it? Yeah, they, and that's yeah. the thing. See, uh, and part of that is, and mind you, I'm not playing some respectability politics either when I say this, but Malcolm says this, Dr. Clark has said this, a lot of people that your father introduced me to, or people that I've been introduced to myself, that if you allow other people to teach your children, what do you expect? Right. If these people don't understand the culture of your children. They don't understand that, you know, if your child is bored, they're going to probably respond a little differently than someone from Maplewood or Livingston or, you know, those those particular communities. Right. So if that's the case, how do you do deal with that? And, and don't get me wrong, like, I had some amazing teachers, like, from different cultures, but I also was raised in a, in a two-family home. So we're really talking about in respect to kids that don't have a stable home environment like how do we help them and and my question for you too is like from um from dealing with the populations you do deal with what are the things that you've seen them lack um that have kind of helped them filter into the the prison system who would the what would the what would the, with, the, with the population? Have? Yeah, the population that you deal with. Um, like ultimately, how do we help them stay out of the system? Is there like a, there is no formula? But what are the 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 things that that you've seen these kids lack? Um, um, I don't know if this is if this answers your question <clears throat> directly, but one thing, okay, one thing that we lack is is 
is a better vision. And, and this is what I mean by that. Prison is seen prison is seen as a rites of passage. For for manhood. For a lot of people in, in certain communities, I guess. For a lot of communities. That's scary. Prison is seen as a rites of, and what I mean by that too, think about this. Hip hop. Yeah. For instance. Mm-hmm. Hip hop promotes jail culture. The majority of, of the jail culture and, and drug, which... Modern hip-hop. No. Do I... Do I... Do I the history of hip-hop that's been going on? <sighs> I mean, if you, if you think differently, tell me. I... Yeah. And see what winds up happening? When I say... When I say... Modern hip hop, because the only thing, the, the first thing that comes to mind is like Public Enemy <laughs> for me. Yeah, but Public Enemy was socially, con- for instance, Uzi Vert, right? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Nice. No, no, no I'm, I'm saying for a reason. Uh-huh. He has a song called All My Friends Are Dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Is that hip hop though? But, okay, go ahead. He got nominated for, for well, not the Grammys. <sighs> right. But, okay, I'm, but, I'm, but hear me out. Uh huh. So he has a song called All My Friends Are Dead. But then the Ghetto Boys have a song, My Mom Playing Tricks On Me, which is 20, almost 20 years ago, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Then you go back to uh, 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 Grandmaster Flash, which was kind of like socially conscious, mm-hmm. but it's still, you'll admire all the number book takers, the pimps and pushers, and the big money makers, driving big cars, pushing 20s and 10s, and you want to grow up to be just like them, uh, smugglers, scramblers, burglars, gamblers, pickpocket peddlers, even panhandlers. You say, I'm cool, huh? I'm no fool, but then you wind up dropping out of high school. Now you're unemployed. All nine boy walking around like the pretty boy Floyd turned stick-up kid, but look what you done did. Got sent up for an eight-year bid. Now your manhood's took and you're a mate tag spend the next two years as an undercover fag being used in the views served like hell to one day you was found hung dead in the cell it was plain to see that your life was lost you was cold and your body swung back and forth but now your eyes sing the sad sad song of how you live so fast and die so young I still remember that and that's from 1984 so you've always had this genre of music hip hop Always looking at things from that perspective, from that point of view, from that time on. Now, it, you know, it changes, it modifies over time, but we're still addressing the same thing and we're still kind of bigging up jail. Wu Tang Clan, do this bid, come home. It's the same thing. Why is it that we always got to go do a bid and then come back home? Like, what is that about? You know, and, and the thing is, when do we change it? When do we change it? Jay-Z tried to change it with this 444, mm-hmm. right? And people ro- tried to roast him. 50 tried to roast him mm-hmm. about doing it because he's like, because you can just see how he's he's responding uh, uh, in that in, 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 in where he's at right now. You know, he, he loves being married. He loves looking at his children. He's trying to change it because remember when Jay came out with Reasonable Doubt, everything was about getting that money and hustling. Right. I used to see Jay on 8th Street. <laughs> I used to see him on J Street driving the, the whips or whatever because that was his thing. But then he's selling his new album 
yo, you know, if I knew what I know now, then I would do things differently. Right. Nas did it before him with that album, the album he, where he got on his quote-unquote grown man. And what the hell does that mean, getting on my grown man? When do we, when do we make the transition from, from that way of thinking to how, where Jay is at right now? How do we make that transition? We start to see ourselves as African people. And then what? And then things will automatically change. Then you then you will see how important you are uh, to your family structure and how it is, uh, 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 what it's supposed to be to raise your children, to take on the legacy of where we need to be as opposed to where we're at. And when you say raise yourself, um, raise your children, raise your, no, no, no. When you say to see ourselves as African people, Mm -hmm. it's mainly, I think for me, it would, it'd be to really inform yourself. But, but not only just, not only just to inform, it's it's beyond that. And that's part of it, Mm -hmm. but it's beyond that. It's a cultural thing. For instance, um, I remember back in the day, it was about, you know, wearing a polo or whatever. And, Cat used to say, yo, I dress like a white boy. What does that mean? You dress like a white boy? That was what we used to say. Just like a white boy, right? Um, Cat used to get the little S curls in their hair. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They get the little moon part like Raekwon gets, and they get the little S curl in their hair. You know, how do, how do we get beyond that? And, 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 and mind you, we're probably closer to it now than we've ever... It's so funny. It's because ironic. of social media. Because of social media. But, okay, it's so true. my question now is um, you hear a lot... And I know that you're pretty active on social media, so I know you've I seen this it. whole um, quote-unquote hotel movement. And I don't like it. <laughs> but, okay, so for everyone... Um, I, don't, I don't like the fact listen, that... Listen, okay, listen, I'm sorry. Listen. I'm sorry. So for, for everyone who's not familiar with it... Um, number one, what does Hotep even mean? Hotep is is a is from the the language that some have have been, I think, pretty successful at uh, translating, uh, like Riketty, mm-hmm. who, whom of course you're Riketty Amen. He's like right, Riketty Amen. <laughs> um, it means peace, uh-huh. and there are other things that go along with that, and that's the thing being able to make African culture practical. So when I hear people say, "Oh, these Hoteps," hold on, but it's from the language of of uh, the, the ancient Kemetic right. people, right? Okay. Or what people deem the Greek word, the ancient Egyptians. Right. Um, so, and then this whole type movement explains to people exactly <laughs> There is the whole type movement. But, okay. There's an African movement in, 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 in Egypt or Kemet is a part of it. No, but people on social media okay. uh, they really refer to like this Hotep movement it's very like it's negating it's negating right, it's very like male centered anti-women not true um, the Hotep movement yeah what is a Hotep first of all no 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 the Hotep movement online like that I okay, see okay right but the thing, right, right. This, this is what I'm talking about I, I know what you're saying but, uh, but see I'm from another segment like uh, Dr. Greg Carr from Howard University. I'm talking about my generation. But why and that's but why, why getting, calling it hotel? Because it's, it's I don't know, I don't even know where that came from, but it's just getting misconstrued. It's weak. I feel like it's, it's really weak. Oh, it's, it makes me cringe. I man. know. I, it makes me cringe too, because I'm just like Yo, you have they, all these people online. They will say a hotel when I met your father back in I the understand 80s. That, but they're using like the hotel movement as like this whole like 
it's just a bunch of like really honestly it's a bunch of guys like just bashing women and any and everybody that's not black and I don't know where they get their information from but well, it's just, you know where they get it from they get it believe it or not they get it from some of that stuff comes from things that I learned uh, they know they, they've taken that stuff and they've twisted it or whatever uh, but the foundation right 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 and that's the thing and that's unfortunate because because of social media and because of the technology that we right, have right because you can go to YouTube and see a, a lecture by Dr. Clark but you won't read uh, um, African World Revolutionary by Dr. John Henry Clark but listen people would they'll view these like hotel leaders more than they will view Dr. Clark and that's what's that is what's cringeworthy well because you gotta think we're living because in they're time. saying such like obscene things and it's just no but the thing you know why you know why it's like that because it's mixed with some truth and and, and believe it or not you're gonna be get more people to follow you when, when you do that for instance right Tariq Nasheed. Tariq Nasheed is the producer of Hidden Colors. Like, he was part of what people may deem as... The, and even sometimes he goes in and talks. He's hotep. Like, he's... Like, <laughs> like he's not a part of it. But you, you're a part of this hotep movement, right? But the thing is this. For one, in him making Hidden Colors was a good thing. And there's some people that feel like, oh, you know, uh, they, they think it's trash. Mm. Right? But it has gotten more people... To, to research the history of African people and than a lot of things. Right. Yeah. So more, today... More than anything else because of the distribution. Absolutely. Of and, and, and the movie was coming out. He had the movie in theaters and stuff and the, 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 the visual was great. Mm. And you can't deny it. It, it was good. Even this, this new documentary, 1804, about the Haitian Revolution. It's right. Dr. Right. Mm. So, like, he was in that. Right. Mm-hmm. But he gets into this whole back and forth with Umar Johnson. Mm-hmm. They going back yeah. and forth. Yeah. They calling he making little puppets and stuff. So it, it literally negates mm-hmm. a doctor. Those people like Doctor Clark and and, and Doctor J- and Professor James Smalls and uh, Renoka Rashid. It negates that because right. that is the foundation of your information, the research that these individuals were doing. Right? Right, right. He's calling Umar out his name. Umar's calling him out his name. It's real juvenile bullshit. Mm-hmm. Part of my expression, <laughs> right? But the flip side is this. So, Tariq Nasheed gets on Instagram today. Of course, his Instagram is connected to his Twitter, is connected to his Facebook, mm-hmm. right? He makes a comment about the woman that got up and talked about the Dreamers and saying that the Dreamers helped build this country. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So, Tariq Nasheed checks it. To listen to this this woman saying that they, this that's bullshit. The Africans built this country and you got your history wrong. Right. So now people are like, whoa, wait a minute. So he's pointing out a truth. Oh, I see what you're saying. But because of all that stuff that happened, right. people are kind of like, okay. Right. And so now people are responding. His fan base is responding like, whoa, wait a minute. That's crazy. Why would they say that? What do they mean by uh, uh, they helped build this country? No, Africans built this country. They were kidnapped and forced to build this country. So here it is. He's hitting you with a dash of truth. Mm-hmm. So now you get this truth. But then it's coupled with mm-hmm. all this foolishness. Yep. So now they're putting all that together mm-hmm. and people are judging him based on that. Now, mind you, on the opposite side, you've got the Fibonacci's. That's oh. what they call them, the Fibonacci's. I've never... What? The, they, they, they deem uh, these group of women as hating men. 
Fem- feminazis. Feminazis. <laughs> right. God. So now you got that whole, and mind you, their information is steeped in feminist ideology. Right. So now you got that going on. So it ain't even about uh, making strides about coming together and working out things. You got the Fibonacci's and Yeah, because you stay so far from the center. It's ridiculous. And people just took time to read and yeah. research. Yep. Yeah. So I guess... <sighs> it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> For me, I, you know, my question to everyone... Um, is their role in the revolution and what is your your definition of a revolution? It's I feel funny. like when people hear revolution, they kind of like take a step back and be like, "What do you mean? Where are you getting your guns from?" Right, right, right. <laughs> but it comes in many different forms. So, absolutely, what is what, what's your definition? Revolution, of revolution is change. Okay. Revolution is change, and 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 you'll always hear me talk about practicality. Mm-hmm. What are you doing to be to 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 be practical? What are you doing culturally? How are you practicing uh, dealing with your, your fellow uh, brother or sister? Mm. How do you deal with uh, um, how you see things spiritually? How do you take care of yourself? How do you eat? You know what I mean? Are, are, you, a hel- are you healthy? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you taking care of your children? Mm. Um, how are you treating the woman in your life? How are you treating your parents? How are you treating the elders? Right. Um, what type of organizations are you affiliated with? You know, are you a part of a rights of passage program for men, for boys or girls? Um, all of these things are part of a revolution. Um, and some people might go a little further when they talk about revolution because revolution has changed. And unfortunately, um, anything can happen. And I'm not implying that anything should happen because um, I don't want to see violence of any kind. However, when you're talking change, you know, anything can happen. And you have a segment of the, you have a segment of this, this, this country that believe that, uh, this change is inevitable. This change will involve bloodshed, you know? Um, and you see that a lot with the intelligence reports uh, with white supremacist groups mm-hmm. in this country. You know, me and a, 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 a gentleman got into it verbally the other day. And, you know, he was going on about broken homes. You know, the urban area is like that because of broken homes and welfare and blah, 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 blah. That's it. So their threat, are they equivalent to terrorists? <laughs> so he says, uh, well, yeah, yeah. I said, well, how are they a threat to terrorists when they're, they're more of a threat to themselves in those communities? When, when you have all of those dismalities and all of those things that are existing in urban areas, these things are contained in urban areas. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that, though, is that <laughs> cops are being killed. Who are killing these cops? Who are killing the cops in this country? White supremacists. Yeah. They just came out. Didn't they just come out with a, a report? They're right? always coming That's, out yeah. reports. It's always coming out reports. They just these white supremacists, th- these white supremacists, they will kill police. And so I said that to him, and he had nothing else to say. <laughs> so what? what is your role in the revolution? It's funny you say say that, too, because, you know, every once in a while I'm on WBAI, mm-hmm. no, WLIB, no, WBAI. <laughs> yeah, WBAI. I'm on one there sometimes with uh, Professor... Lawyer J. Brown Marshall, she interviews me for different... So I've been on there maybe about three times. And she always says that... I, I tell her, don't call me an activist. 
And that comes to with the contradiction of being in law enforcement because right. I can't be an activist, but, but maybe I can. But but I think the safer term is being an advocate. I see. And being able to bring information to light mm-hmm. with regard to where we're at and where our community is at. Mm-hmm. You know, because what you need to be worried about is taking care of the self. Right. Taking care of your family, taking care of your community, then looking outside your community and making those things better to be a reflection to that outside the community. So I try to be an advocate for um, for things that that um, will help our community. Being doing things practically, practicing spirituality, uh, practicing. Um, dealing with holistic medicine I, doing all these things that just make us better human beings because at the end of the day it's about being a better human being and so when my children grow up of age I want them to not be superstars you know not be super duper athletes or you know I want them to be and if they do that great but it's about being a better human being and being able to deify one's culture in doing that see we shouldn't be in a space where we're ashamed of who we are as African people. Right. And, and, and when we can become an example of that, um, it will resonate in everything that we do and people will, 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 they will, they will take heed to that. They'll look at that like, wow, you know, look at all this hoopla with, with Black Panther. Mm, Yeah. But let me ask you a question Uh for, um, what does Black History Month mean to you? For me, I wanted to do black because um, one of the reasons is I look at black history as like a celebration of, of um, our ancestors' achievements and even to look at the mistakes that they've made and for us to kind of, well, not mistakes, they're teaching moments okay. right, right. <laughs> that, that they've made um, and for us to kind of learn from it. And history is important in us in order for us not to make those same mistakes again. Right. So, what does Black History Month mean to you? Black History Month is is, <clears throat> and this should be said all the way out for before you come to judgment. Okay. <laughs> Black History Month is something that we kind of failed to do. Um, when I say fail, not fail to do. I think yeah, we yeah we we failed to. Um, we failed to develop Black History Month. And what I mean by that, remember, Black History Month started with a Black History Week mm-hmm. with Dr. Carter G. Woodson. And so after Black History Week, it turns to Black History Month. I think it's our obligation to take that and to expand that even more so. You know, we, we, we stuck with the shortest month of the year, February, mm-hmm. right? All right, that's cool, whatever. You know what I mean? But we have to get to the point where, like Francis, I bet you, I don't know, I almost say you wouldn't know, but I'm, I think most people don't know that this is the decade of the African at the UN. The UN has declared this, this next 10 years up to 2024, 2024, 2022, so this is the decade of the African. What does that mean? Meaning that they're, 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 it's a deification of African throughout the diaspora. Everything going on with African people should be celebrated. Mm. It's a film thing that I was invited to by Gloria J. Brown Marshall next week uh, um, in reference to the decade of the African. You know, how do we make that larger? How do we stay in step with what Dr. Carter G. Woodson did? He, he, he expanded 
African History Week to African History Month? How do we expand that outside of just celebrating African History Month? How do we how do we make that larger? How do we do that outside of February? How do we make that bigger? It's a good thing, though. Don't get me wrong. It's a good. It's a great thing. I mean, I think that um, Black History Month kind of, at least from what I'm seeing, it will be larger every year because of social media. You have all these hashtags like like Black Girl Magic and Black Boy Magic and all this other stuff. So I feel like we're celebrating each other more and we're able to do that at mm-hmm. a larger scale than okay. anything else, too. So... Will it expand to anything more than Black History Month? I think, I personally, again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You I think know. that things are things are <clears throat> things are becoming larger, and I just think that some of us, like you've always looked at certain pop, certain parts of the population, oh, they overdoing it, overdoing it. But those are the ones that keep things balanced. Right. Those are the ones that keep things balanced. So when Doctor Clark was, was talking about the stuff that he was talking about. Uh, now everybody's taking heed to that. Yeah, yeah, and even um, it's funny, Doctor Sebi. Think about <laughs> they that. Used to think that he was crazy. How about that? You know what's funny? Layla Dad. Africa, Doctor Sebi, <laughs> Queen of Fool. This whole vegan thing. Yeah, it started with them. I literally was walking one day and I was like, I. My dad has been eating couscous and, and and millet and all this other stuff for years, for years. Yes, he was. And, you know. All of a sudden. Now everybody's but that's, 20 but, years But that's later. my thing, that we can't keep on waiting yep. for other people to, to, that, to, to embrace yep. our narrative. Yep. That we have to live our truths now. Yep. We can't wait for other people to say, to get into it and say, oh, we, we're going to do that. And then, then we start blaming them for you appropriation. Want validation. Right. right. And it was, oh, you, you appropriate. No, you don't value what you have. Right. You don't value being... Uh, 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 the African that you are, you don't value it. What do you What do you say to people that say that being pro black is being like anti anything else? I don't pay them any attention <laughs> because <laughs> I think that's you know that's part of the the problem too. Like a lot of people are f- not afraid but hesitant. No, it, no, you're right. They're afraid. They're yeah. afraid to be. Let me tell you. When I played, I'm going back to when I played the fraternity and we were online and they were asking people why they wanted to play Alpha. Why they wanted to play Alpha Alpha. We were online, we had to take our hoods off and people were surprised because I was the pro black guy on campus. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, Alpha, he pledging Alpha? What are you doing pledging? Like, these are people in fraternities. Yeah. What are you doing pledging? Like, why would he be pledging? But you a Kappa, right? So they said, why do you want to pledge Alpha Alpha? I said, it's, it's, it's the only fraternity to me that appears to deify one's culture. So he was like, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it blew their mind, you know, for the, some cats. And, and, and that's the thing. When are we going, when is it going to be all right? Yeah. yeah. Is, are, are we going to start wearing African garb when Black Panther is, is a month in theaters? Are we going to stop? Or is this something that we can carry through? I've been wearing African garb. And mind you, I look at some of my old college pictures. Because I used to see your pops. Your pops used to wear some slick shirts. <laughs> yeah. All right? Your pops, yeah. And your pops used to lift a little bit. I remember that, right? <laughs> he used to wear African shirts or whatever. And to this day, I do, I've do. i been doing that since I was in, like, in college. Yeah. I still do that to this day. And, I, and I, God willing, 
my, my three-year-old and my one-year-old will do the same thing. You know, we have to be a deification in culture. We can't let people, like, what winds up happening to when you talk about African consciousness, right? People started getting start getting into the, the spirituality later on. So now, there's certain, certain things that I deal with when it comes to spirituality. Like, those are the things that Dr. Clark and Dr. Benton never really touched. They just touched the history and the research. Right. But they seldom got into the spirituality. So some people will say to me, oh, well, you know, you don't have to do that, you know, because people, they wear African garb, but they don't got nothing. Well, I got something upstairs. And I still choose to wear African garb. Mm. When I go to the, the African Street Festival, the, the International African Arts Festival in Brooklyn, I throw my African stuff on so I can go celebrate our culture. Right. When I go to BAM, Dance Africa, mm. I got my African culture. I got my African culture on. Yeah. Whenever I go to a Kwanzaa event, I have my African culture on because I want you to know that I'm an African. Y'all look like an African. I look like I'm from Nigeria. I look like I'm from Haiti sometimes to some people. But I want you to know that, and I'm not ashamed of that. I want you to know that when you see me. Mm-hmm. So even when I'm in a, at, at, at work and I'm in a space where we talk about ethnicities or whatever, I refer to her sometimes as African people. And what do they say? They don't say anything. <laughs> what can they say? They don't say anything. And it's funny because in doing that, right, when when you do that, um, it, it doesn't really catch them off guard. You know, it it, it, it it doesn't. You know, the only people that really seem like it catches off guard is us. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But them, oh, I'm like, I came to work one day. I was on call at East Jersey State Prison when I first got into internal affairs. I don't know where I was at. But I had some some sandals on, right? Some old gold sandals, like straight African sandals with African top. And I had time to go home and change. Right. And I went to the jail <laughs> with my African stuff on. <laughs> you know, and nobody said nothing. For yeah. the most part, they were like... What can they say? You're fully clothed. Like, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? So I had that. One time I was um, teaching, me and my man Anton, we used to teach an African history class on Saturdays. So I was coming from the class going to my car. Somebody was breaking in my car. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) And I'm like, what? (laughs) And so my friend Tanu was like, is that somebody breaking into your car? And I'm like, I'm all African now. So I go over there and make a long story short, I have my my thing thing. Get your ass up against the wall, right? So I'm checking them. So the the police come, right? Uh-huh. So I was like, oh, I gotta be careful now. So I was like, look, I'm putting the gun down. So I put him down, and so the dude winds up slipping away. I said, no, don't let him get away. But because they're so fresh fixed on me, because I had the weapon, Mm-mm-mm. they stopped me. And they let the guy get away. Now, they you didn't have your, your badge on you or anything? I mean, yeah, but they still see this dude, <clears throat> you know what I mean, with this African stuff on or whatever. But because I knew how to respond, I still was good, but they let the guy get away. And it was another dude coming to me. Look, y'all let another guy get away. Like, they seen it. The brother seen it. So then, ironically, they asked me. I give him my weapons card. I give him my ID and everything. So then the, um, one of the, the cops says, I look at him. I said, dude. We work together every day. Oh my gosh! And says, oh, he said, "I thought I recognized you." And da, 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 da. how do you? How does that happen? But I have no regrets, though, because again, we have to deify our culture. We have to value 
who we are. We have to value the things that we wind up discarding and then somebody picks it up and then we get mad because they pick it up. Right. You mad. What are you mad for? So now when my children drop things on the floor, I say, Makeda, value your things. I, I say that now. I don't just say pick it up. Makeda, it's yours. Value your things. So maybe that'll resonate and they'll internalize that. But we have to we have to value our culture. We have to value uh, who we are. We have to value our spiritual systems. We have to value our names. Yep. You know what I mean? Like your name. Like, do you appreciate your name now? I I've, I've never ever had any regrets. I've told Daddy this millions of times. Like, for for those of you who don't know, like my dad named me. Her first name is Nafakar. Her middle name is Raketty. And um, I. I told him, I was like, yo, I love my name. Okay. I was like, thank you so much. That's like, good. That's he was just good. like, look at me like, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, I love my name. And and it's funny that you bring that up because like, even at work now, like I'll, I go by my first name at work mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, hey, can we call you so-and-so? And I, no, that's not my name. Right. Like, and my name is not hard. It's like super straightforward. How, how it's spelled is how... How you see it. How you go to this other stuff, right? No, you may not call me Nephi. Like, Nephicar is my name, and that's it. Okay, no problem. What are you going to say? Right, that's right. I love my name. I love my name. And and that's my thing. Getting to that place where we value who we are as African people. We we have to value that. Because, I mean, growing up, I mean, even me, you know, being dark, you know, you, you have an issue with that growing up. Even me, even some people are like, damn, you have a lot of, you have high self-esteem. Everybody goes, I never forget, I, I think even Farrakhan said one time, even in him being in his religion that, 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 that where they're seen as black nationalists, he still can't get the picture of a white Jesus out of his head. You know, and I, and I pray that my children never come up and, and you can kind of see like with my daughter, now she seems like she's gravitating towards certain dolls. And I'll be like, nah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not going to happen. And see, and what happens too, and particularly with women, and I'm not bashing, but I'm just keeping it real, they can't get around certain, like for holidays, or whatever. they got to have a Christmas tree or whatever. Oh, it's not going to hurt. But all of these things, maybe uh, individually, mm. is no impact. But you look at these things holistically, there is an impact, and it's a, it's a valuing of other people's systems. Gotcha. And those systems have a way of looking at us differently, or looking at us as second class. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we have to be careful. Right. And that's why it's so important <clears throat> again that we value our culture and that we deify our own culture. Period. What What's your hope for the future? Um, I know we spoke, and I think you're. You can retire fairly young, right? True. What What is your hope for the population that you, I guess, physically you would leave behind once you leave um, your current job? I'm just hoping again, going back to that whole the whole cultural thing. I, I'm I'm hoping that they take that the next generation takes things a step further. You know, um, that they value going to Ghana and Nigeria and Senegal. I think it's already, for sure it's already started. 
Yeah. Like, I, I see it. I, I do, too. I, I do, because, you know, at one time, I, with, with, with the, popula- the, the population that I came up with, it's about going to Paris and going to Greece. Right. But people are going to these other countries, you know. Um, just being able to value that. Being able to... to and like you say, it's happening now. Yo, thank God for social media. And it's funny, when I say that to people, they're like, oh, you know, people are crazy. Yeah, people are crazy everywhere, but... People have learned so much, mm-hmm. and they've been exposed to so much. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even with the organization African Echo, you know, your father is 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 uh, an important part of that. You know, you know, hooking up with Dalian Adolfo in London. You know, he's from Ghana, but he did the movie um, Esoteric Knowledge, African Spirituality. You know, we were able to bring him to the United States, and he, you know, he did his lecture. We had a panel discussion. Being able to take those things and 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 evolve, make you know, to to make them bigger. Um, the African Eagles didn't never do that. They never did a panel discussion. We were able to get people in this, the African spiritual community to can participate in that. Um, just doing things, and I think that, that that's your father loved that. Your father loved the fact that. Um, we were able to do that. Um, that I was able to do my my capstone on African Echoes and have a business plan. You know, now granted, I don't know if they're gonna ever use it, <laughs> but it's available. You know, it's available for them to use. Like, you know, I, I got my masters and that was my choice of of my capstone. And that's a living, breathing document that they could actually use. It's a 501c3 now. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we take these things further? How do we turn them into institutions? Mm-hmm. How do we turn them into think tanks? How do we do things that rival uh, uh, the people who, who are in power now? Look at China. Like, China wasn't always where they at right now. China in the next 20 years will be the number one economic superpower. Yeah, for sure. Try. Cut and dry. It's no getting around it. They're going to be the number one. Uh, uh, mind you, at one time, it was supposed to be 2050. Now they're talking 2035. Thanks. It's 2018 right now. Ah, I can't even believe that. Like, I can't. It's 2018 <laughs> right now. So now you've you got the, these people. And China did it because they, China did it because they're a civilization state. How long has it been? Um, they're a civilization state. So, 95% of the Chinese believe that they come from one tribe, the Han tribe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, again, it's just about the evolution. It's about the practicality of African culture and seeing ourselves as African people and uh, moving forward in that vein. Yep. <sighs> this was a really good uh, interview slash conversation. I'm hoping it was. No, it, it really was. Um, so, once again... This is Riketti. Uh, we declare war. This is the Wiser Edition with Ali McBride. Thank you so much. And um, any information about African Echoes, I'll leave in the link in the bio. Anything you want to say? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think I said it all. Say bye. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>